and thank you for tuning in to the Recovered Athlete Podcast, a space where we explore food, mental health, sport, and everything in between while getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. I'm your host, Lizzie Briasco. Let's dive in. Hello, hello! So, since this is the first episode, I thought I would tell you a little bit about me and why this podcast now exists. So, as the name implies, I am a recovered athlete, although now I consider myself more of a recreational athlete. And recovered from what specifically, you may be asking? Well, an eating disorder. It's a little double entendre because recovery after working out is important from a nutrition perspective and also recovery is important from an eating disorder perspective so there you go there's ah we said the title so yeah I was a competitive distance runner at the national level since I was about 10 or 11 years old I competed up through my junior year in college before I got hip surgery so a solid decade developed an eating disorder was in denial I eventually accepted it and changed my behaviours, which we can talk about at a later date. But quite frankly, it really, really sucked. Um, There was not really any education about it. The only reason I realised that I even had an eating disorder to begin with was because I was a nutrition major and we had one 45-minute lecture about it throughout my whole four-year undergraduate education and we were going through the checklist or the checklists of the different diagnoses in class and I was just sitting there ticking off each one of the criteria for a couple of different ones and I was like huh okay so I think I might have this this is terrifying and I can't deal with this right now so I'm just gonna brush it under the rug hope everything is hunky-dory and uh, just keep on keeping on. So that's what I did until eventually it felt like it was consuming my whole life and I didn't know what to do about it. The things I was experiencing was such a taboo, not only with my non-athlete friends, but especially with my athlete friends. The irony was I knew that some of my other friends who were also athletes were experiencing very similar things, but we just felt like we couldn't talk about it. I mean, who would want to talk about things that you do when you have an eating disorder. It's very uncomfortable and rife with shame. So after I graduated, I basically just gave a big middle finger to society and the whole life that I had lived for the past decade or so and uh, fucked off to the woods for a year, which was the best decision I have ever made. I mean, honestly, if I had known that going to treatment was an option and I wasn't so ashamed about it, I probably would have reached out for help. But shoulda, woulda, coulda. This is what I did instead. And hey, I'm still here. Surviving and thriving. Anywho, it would have really helped to have someone to talk to about it and to help me try and understand why I was doing the things that I was doing and why I had the attitude towards food and movement and my body that I did. I'm very lucky that I was able to work through stuff on my own and with the help of friends that I eventually made, but I definitely would not recommend that route for anybody. 
And quite frankly, I am lucky to still be sitting here recovered, because it very easily could not have turned out that way. Fast forward several years, and now I'm a registered dietitian. I've been a registered dietitian for about three years, and I'm also a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics, or CSSD, which is basically a fancy way to say a sports dietitian. In my experiences as a dietitian so far, I've really decided that my niche passion area is athletes and eating disorders. I love working with people who are recovering from eating disorders, and I love working with athletes who don't necessarily have diagnosable eating disorders, but I do think that most athletes do struggle with some form of disordered eating. And it can be pretty tough, because in some ways, sport really exacerbates a disordered mindset, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I like to think that everything happens on a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum we have the typical quote-unquote normal way of doing things, and on the other end of the spectrum we have the extremely disordered way of doing things, and most people fall somewhere in the middle. And I do think most athletes tend to be bang on the middle of that spectrum with most things, which again is not necessarily a bad thing because I do think in some way, you need to have some form of a disordered mindset to be a competitive athlete. You need to be able to push your body to certain limits and be comfortable with that uncomfortable place in order to progress and compete at a certain level. The issue comes when that disordered mindset really becomes a solid form of black and white thinking and there's no flexibility whatsoever. And it's those kinds of things that we're going to be discussing on this podcast. So I do want to make it very clear that this podcast is in no way, shape or form any comparable substitute for any form of treatment or recovery supplement. We will be talking mostly about anecdotal things and the point is really to provide more insight and awareness around eating disorders and how they may present and how they affect someone who is experiencing one. Because quite frankly, everybody could learn about disordered eating and what it could look like and especially what it feels like. Heads up, don't feel good. So eventually I would like to interview current and former athletes who are currently in recovery from an eating disorder, who have fully recovered from an eating disorder, who have relapsed. Basically anybody who feels like they have something that they could share that could help someone who is either in a similar place or who is in a similar place where that athlete, former athlete has been. Because honestly, we could do so much better. We could do better with educating our athletes, we could do better with having empathy for our athletes, and we could do better as practitioners to help prevent severely disordered eating that may develop into full-blown eating disorders, especially (laughs) with athletes, because they are at a higher risk. Another way of saying an at-risk population is a vulnerable population, which is absolutely not allowed to be said in any sport. Vulnerability is seen as weakness, and mental illness is seen as worse than a broken leg. And part of that is because nobody fucking talks about it. Like Brene Brown says, who is a goddess on earth, shame cannot survive when it is shared. In other words, the more that we're able to talk about our shameful experiences, the less shame we feel about them, and the more neutralized they become. And this is super important for anybody who's experiencing an eating disorder, because eventually, when you share your story, and you come to terms with it, you don't try and hide it under the bed anymore, or shove it down way down deep. 
Once you don't try and disconnect it from your story, once you weave it into your story, it doesn't become something that you necessarily want to hide from someone, and it's not something that defines you. It doesn't break you down. Eventually, it actually becomes something that helps build you back up, and in turn, helps you build others up, who may be struggling with similar things. Kind of the point of this podcast. That's probably the biggest thing that someone who is struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder can know, is that you are not alone. And if you are receiving help or treatment, that is the bravest thing you can do. To be able to acknowledge that you have an issue to begin with and that you need help with something in a culture that really shames and strongly discourages anything of the sort that really exacerbates and harps on being the best, being perfect, doing everything that you absolutely possibly can is a pretty big feat. And then to follow up on that and say, you know what, I actually can't do this on my own. It's not that I'm not strong enough. It's that I just really don't know how and I don't know what's happening. I need help. To be able to say that and follow through and actually get some help with it, again, in a culture that really vilifies that and shames that, is huge. That's a really big accomplishment. And um, I don't think it's one that really gets understood or appreciated enough. If we look at the research real quick, the numbers show that about 10 to 20% of collegiate student athletes, males and females, struggle with some form of either an eating disorder or subclinical eating disorder. So a subclinical eating disorder is when someone has eating disorder symptoms, but they may not be as severe or as frequent enough to quote unquote qualify them as having a clinical eating disorder. That doesn't mean that it's still not an issue. So if we make an analogy out of it, because I love analogies and stories, sometimes they suck, but we'll see where this one goes. If we say an eating disorder is the equivalent of a really bad gash on your leg, and you need to go into surgery and have stitches, the whole shebang, then a subclinical or subthreshold eating disorder would most likely be the equivalent of a really bad gash, not one that needs stitches and you don't need to go to the ER, but you definitely need more than a band-aid or a piece of gum to keep it together and stop it from bleeding on things that you use on a regular basis, like your clothes and your cooking utensils. That's a food safety hazard. Your bed sheets, your friends. Nobody likes their friends bleeding on them. Not cool. So, based on this very clinical and professional analogy, it's fair to say that a subclinical eating disorder can, in some cases, or maybe even a lot of cases, have as much of an impact on someone who's struggling as an actual clinically diagnosable eating disorder can. It also plays into the idea that a lot of people who struggle with food and body issues have, and that is the concept of not being sick enough. I'm not sick enough. It's not that bad. Yes, my day-to-day functioning is impaired, but I'm not dead yet, so it must not be that bad. Lies! Those are lies that your eating disorder is telling you. And everyone deserves to have a healthy relationship with food, their sport, movement, and their body. And now for the age-old question, but what does healthy mean? And to that I say, it's something that everybody has to figure out for themselves. Yes, there are some general themes 
that everybody shares when they do have a quote-unquote healthy relationship with food, movement, body image, etc. But there are also some details that may be very different between people. For instance, someone may really love going to the gym and lifting weights a couple times a week. It makes them feel strong, they're able to appreciate their body, they like the smell of barbells, that one's questionable. For someone else, Going to the gym a couple times a week may sound like literal torture, so they might like going for a walk, and the same principle can be applied to food. Someone may really like apples and bananas. Someone else may really prefer grapes and oranges. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What matters is being able to figure out what works for you and in what capacity, how you can respect your body in a multitude of ways, and how you can develop those habits and tools using certain resources like nutrition education to be empowered to do that on a long-term basis. In conclusion to this TED Talk, everybody's body is different and everybody's brain is different, especially for those who experience extremely disordered and distorted thoughts around food, exercise, and body image. It doesn't mean anything is wrong with those brains or those people. They just need to be understood. Which again, is kind of the point of this podcast. The main message being, you are not alone. Thanks so much again for listening to this first episode of the Recovered Athlete Podcast. And remember, food is more than fuel, you are more than a body, and life is more than sport.